Hello and welcome to Season 1 of Career Inspiration by VentureFizz. On this episode, our host Keith Klein is joined by Christina Luconi, Chief People Officer at Rapid7. They discuss the importance of diversity, how to get a job at Rapid7, and what it was like going public. Hello everyone and welcome to Season 1 of the VentureFizz Career Inspiration Podcast. I'm Keith Klein, the founder of VentureFizz and the host for today's program. As you know, VentureFizz is Boston's most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news and insights. We are really excited because we recently hit a milestone with over 2,000 jobs across all functions at Boston's fastest growing companies. It's pretty crazy because the tech scene here is flying. And we're having this first season of our podcast where we're speaking with some exceptionally talented leaders who head up the HR and talent acquisition function at some of Boston's fastest growing companies. Today, I'm really excited to have Christina Luconi on our show. She is the Chief People Officer at Rapid7, an anchor company here in the Boston tech ecosystem. Hello, Christina. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Keith. Thanks for having me. I'm honored to have Christina with us as she is not only one of the top executives in our field here, but she is also one of our guest contributors. So she writes a thought leadership column for us every Thursday where she shares different thoughts and insights relating to high growth companies. So I definitely encourage you to check it out. Christina, welcome again. Thank you. Obviously, we'd love to spend some time to walk through your background. You've done a lot throughout your career in terms of building high-growth tech companies. Uh, I thought it'd be great if you just spent some time to walk us through your career from even the early beginnings of graduating from school. Uh, sure. Um, I have a sort of an, a, a different background. I was a psych major uh, in college and thought I was going to go into some form of counseling. And I realized... Um, I should say this, but I realized, you know, sort of halfway through my degree, I probably wasn't as empathetic as I needed to be to listen to people talk about themselves all day long. And I ultimately um, ended up taking the advice of my father, who is a serial entrepreneur, and he said, go try to apply your degree or your experience, your limited experience in a business world and see if, if you can actually get a job that makes money after school. And I ended up um, interning at a local software company in Cambridge in Kendall Square, and, um, and the company went public just a couple of weeks into my internship. And I thought, as a very naive 20-year-old, oh, this is amazing, smart people and good so idea, easy. and everyone makes money, that's what I want to do. And ultimately, that's what I ended up doing. And I, I basically partnered looking at startups or high-growth companies um, in this area um, because I thought they would give me an opportunity with very little experience to grow and and if you're curious and and ambitious and you raise your hand and say I'll do that you tend to get a little more opportunity than you do at a sort of a normally normal function company um so startups looked really appealing to me and on the people side of things I was very very fortunate to be incredibly inquisitive and start asking a whole lot of questions about why why is this why do we think about people this way um, I started asking why do we even call it human resources like resources are my printer why if we're really trying to build something and scale something quickly we should be thinking about it a little differently and luckily I worked with a group of people over my career that allowed me to ask those questions and and, and test theories rather than get mad at me for <laughs> poking too many holes in the current current system and and then one uh stop around on your career was at Sapiens, which is a well-known company here from, uh, you know, one of the anchor companies that were bringing companies online, right? So uh, how'd you get connected with Sapiens? I did. I cold called my way in there. Did you I, really? I um, was, uh, you know, had about four years of experience under my belt at a consulting firm and I'd finished my 
grad school degree and thought I was ready to kind of run the show, run, run people's strategy from the ground up. Um, and um, clearly my confidence did not match my actual skill set at that point. But I liked Sapient because um, it was a it was a bunch of young people running a company and actually seemed to be onto something. It was a good space. They were, they were doing good things. They were growing quickly. I loved the fact that they had two CEOs um, who balanced their, their skill sets. And, and I called the one that I thought I would connect with better and, um, and basically talked my way into creating a, a people function within their company. So we were probably, they were probably just under 200 when I joined. Um, and I stayed for about five years and we were 3,500 when I left. So wow. pretty ridiculous growth. And from there you went to at stake, which was a security consulting firm. It was a security consulting firm. I was hired before we had people. I was hired off a business plan um, from some VCs and, and um, got very excited about what cybersecurity meant. It was just a really interesting new thing. Now everybody, now my mom knows what a breach was in 2000. It was very um, very new, but I got very bought into trying the notion of trying to build a company around essentially eight hackers um, who went by handles at that point. It was this very clandestine thing, but I thought it was such an interesting problem to solve. Um, so it was there until we sold to Symantec. And since then, you've been with Rapid7, correct? I have. I had in, in between companies, I end up doing my own thing and consulting with organizations until I find the next great thing, and then I tend to fall in love with customers and, and not real customers, but customer companies. And that's what happened here too. I came in to, to do consulting work. And after a few months, I was very bought into uh, our CEO, Corey Thomas's vision for where we could potentially go and what we could do here. So I, I joined on full time. What does Rabbit7 do? We are a, a, a very evolving company, but historically our roots are in cybersecurity. And now we balance sort of security and IT, um, really helping people to understand where they're most vulnerable and using analytics and data to help people really figure out how to focus on what's going to help them be um, the most secure. So we use a lot of data at this point to and what, help us drive that. How large is the company now, employees? We just hit 1,000 people a week wow. ago. Congratulations. Thank That's you. That's phenomenal. You've worked at different companies at different stages. What do you think the differences are you know, from each stage? early company at stake was business plan, sapient, couple hundred people, mm -hmm. rapid seven thousand. Sure. Can you talk about the different stages of companies and what the differences are? Sure. There's actually a study done. There's a, I think it's a British anthropologist named Robin Dunbar, if I have that correct. And he was actually looking at different stages. And so there's actually data around this. But if you look at sort of the first couple of people, that's one stage, right? And then you get to, to for, for I'll use my own numbers, I think things shift when you hit about 25 people, and then when you hit 50 people, and 100, and 150, and then it's 500. Then it becomes this big leap. Um, I think we stop recognizing faces. You know everybody for a period of time, right? I think once you hit about 150 people, you don't recognize everybody anymore, and it starts to become this, you know, how do you, how do you grow and, and thrive? And you can survive through that. And then you hit another big shift when you hit around 500, and then I think around 1,000. After that, I'm not particularly intelligent about what happens, but I think those first couple of different stages are pretty significant. Going from a handful of people to 25 people is a big milestone for companies because it starts to, you're really thinking about, I'm not working with just my friends or just people that are known to me, but I've got, you know, now we're, we're starting to hire differently and think differently about the different needs we have and how to get these people collaborating together. 
Um, maybe we're working in different spaces. There's all kinds of things that start to happen as you begin to evolve. Um, and it becomes less startup-y and real, hey, we're trying to build a business here. So I think those different milestones are, are interesting for, for people to hit. You've got a, a great track record of, of building companies. Uh, as you start to scale, how do you keep the bar for talent as high as you do? That's a great, a great question. For me, everything starts at the top, right? If you don't have a good CEO with a good vision about what they're trying to build, and then a great executive team to really support that in lockstep, I think you're you're going to have troubles out of the gate, um, which is challenging because I don't think every CEO starts, if you're starting as a tiny company, they're thinking grandiosely about where we're going and how this is going to be and all these things I need to be thinking about. So it's an interesting it's an interesting challenge, but I think um, thinking about those people pieces from the very beginning become really, really, really important. Who do you want to surround yourself with? Are you just going to look for, um, you know, if you're building a new piece of software, are you looking for 10 of the best developers ever who just have incredible skills? Or is there something else that you share in common? Do you share a mission um, together that you're all trying to kind of get somewhere together? Um, as you add new people in with different skill sets, how do you add in salespeople that are not going to be at war with you, but rather going to work as part of the cohesive unit to deliver what that, that piece is? So I don't think you have to have core values scripted and hanging on your wall on day two, but I think it's really important for leaders to really have an understanding of who the best people are, what what does that look like? It's maybe not just about skills. In our world here, it's about balancing a skill set with the right attitude um, strong aptitude to continue to learn and and, and um, explore and being a really good culture fit. And if people don't have those types of things, they typically don't work out here. Um, so we it took us a while to sort of come up with that conceptually, but I think the earlier that that founders or, or small companies can weave those, those thoughts in, um, to their plans, the better off they're going to be. Sometimes the answer to this question is all the above, but if we could break it down, when you're at a thousand employees, publicly traded, there's lots of different functions that make a software company operate. Are there areas within a company that are particularly challenging to recruit for these days at this scale of a thousand people? Um, it's all getting harder, right? I mean, when I started um, here almost seven years ago, developers were the hardest people to find or people that had any security knowledge whatsoever or whatever, and everybody was hunting for that talent. I would say it's arguably just as hard to find really talented salespeople now. Um, I think it's really hard to find really exceptional recruiters. Um, I think so. I think you could look in you know in almost every team and say that's going to be a tough one. Um, but I think we also hold the bar really high to find that whole dynamic of not just skills but all of those, those other pieces I just mentioned. Um, so it it makes it a little bit more challenging for us yeah. um, by design. So dialing it back to. Companies that are in the early stage, uh, maybe it's a couple founders or 10 people, when do you think is the right time to bring in recruiting? <laughs> as early as you can. Um, I think that, and, it, and when we say recruiter, I don't mean like somebody who's a high aptitude person who's managing your mail either. I think, I think sometimes um, it becomes the low hanging fruit and people think, oh, well, we need a recruiter. Here's a, here's a young person who is interested and, and, you know, they worked in an agency for literally two months and, and they're ready to go source. And I, I would suggest that's not the right model. I don't think you need to hire a VP of recruiting either. I think there's probably something in the middle. 
but somebody who really understands your business, who really um, knows how to source for talent, who can go after and, and connect with people at, all, at various different levels, um, becomes a really, really huge asset for you to have on your team because they know how to negotiate. They know how to sell the fact that your company is not making any money yet, um, but you're just building and they know how to tell that story and get people excited about wanting to give up whatever job that they have um, to come take a risk and be part of your organization. So they have to be great storytellers. They have to be able to be good sourcers. They have to have a wide network of people um, to dip into. And they've got to be really creative because the best people that you probably want to find are not looking for jobs. They're typically passive and you have to go find the angle to to really help them to understand why your opportunity is the best one they could they could look at. To, to expand on that a little bit too, if that person is the first communication point for that candidate, it's just by far so critical. That, huge. Yeah. It's absolutely huge. Yeah. yeah, that whole experience, I mean, that becomes a big buzzword now, candidate mm-hmm. experience. But, but it is absolutely possible to take people out of a cushy job right now and say, we've got a really amazing opportunity. This is why I think you should listen to it and get people to give that up and come join you. But it takes a really, a really strong message and a really good sense of purpose and mission, I think, about what you're trying to accomplish for people to be able to do that. What's the primary job function for a chief people officer, and when should a company think about bringing someone like that onto the team? Um, I don't know because I haven't met many of us. I think, I guess I would, I will, I'll spend two seconds talking about how I think it differs from a CHRO or other sort of senior HR leaders. Um, I've been in the field long enough that I've certainly played in functions. I started my, my career as a recruiter. Um, and then I did time in, um, in sort of more generalist HR roles and things. So I've kind of done everything, um, with the exception of comp and benefits. And thankfully I've always been surrounded by really good people who know how to do that. Um, but I figured out very early in my career that for me, I build around the culture first because I've had the benefit of going into companies before they have any HR function whatsoever. For me, it became about starting with culture, understanding who you are, what's your value set, and how do you communicate that across the organization, and then tying it to every element of the employee life cycle. So from that first touch point to a candidate, um, through people's careers and career development, straight through to the day that they leave your company, everything has to map back to your value set for me. So I spend a lot of time thinking about the center of that problem, sort of the, the, the culture piece. And then I work with some really amazing people to be focused on everything else. I think if you're going into a small company um, and you're going to play that role, you have to have some kind of cultural bias, which is really interesting because in today's world, it's getting a lot of press, but not a lot of people have done it. And I think similar to the sort of, hey, this person's a great you know, they, they, they did two days on a phone call or whatever, they'll be a great recruiter. I think you have to be just as mindful about that with your, with your people elements, whether you call it people strategy, HR, whatever. Um, oftentimes you, when a company is small and they get somebody who's fairly admin centric, who's do, doing benefits and they say, well, that's going to be the new director of people. Well, those people typically have zero um, background, thought, perspective, et cetera on how to build the culture and it becomes more about throwing parties and we have thirsty Thursdays than it does about what is really our core belief system. So there's a place for all of those things. But I think whoever you hire from the beginning has to have a point of view on how is this mapping to your company? How are you going to, how are you going to first harness that 
perspective of your culture and then map it, be able to map it back to every element. Yeah, people don't tend to join companies because of the ping pong and no, they, the it sure doesn't keep them. I mean, it's it's now it's almost table stakes, right? You have to have that stuff, but I don't think it's retaining anyone. What about growing an international company? How do you recruit outside of Boston in the Valley? How do you recruit sure. overseas? How do you build? It's really hard. Yeah, <laughs> it's really I hard. Think so. <laughs> um, I think one of the things that we do is try to find. Um, Cultural, culturally aligned people in those particular areas. So, for example, um, when we took space in Belfast, and now Belfast is our second largest office, we have about 110 people there. When we started investing and deciding that that was going to be a, a new development presence for us, we hired a recruiter um, to help us begin to populate that office. And he was such an amazing culture fit um, that it went a long way in terms of him understanding our story, what we were trying to accomplish. So he would put his own spin about what would land with that environment, but it, he deeply understood who we were and what we were trying to be. That was also really important for us to spend a ton of time with him, to help him so it wasn't just, you know, he's got a handful of anecdotal stories he can share, but but for us to really get to know him and 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 um, build a strong relationship so that he could do it credibly and, and really understanding. So we began to learn more about our international markets and he began to learn more about the core that had been built here in the States. So we've been thoughtful about how we add those people and add those recruiters um, across. And then it becomes really important as they're adding leadership in those areas when we're taking over a new space or we're going to invest in, um, uh, or we took on Dublin, for example, when we did a small acquisition a couple of years ago, how do we tie those people back into our fold? And that's where all the culture work comes in. Digging deep into uh, potential candidates that are interested in, in Rapid7, where are you hiring these days? Everywhere. <laughs> Everywhere. <laughs> I, mean, I think question. every single team is looking for somebody. Um, and, you know, we, we really, that balance is really, really important to us. So certainly we ask people to get to know us a little bit and, and um, you know, do a little homework on us and see if it's a place you want to be. But when they come in here, we really ask. Um, I think we're almost more conversational in nature. I mean, certainly people go through heavy hitting things to make sure you can actually do the job. But I think you'll find our style a little more conversational because we want to get to know the person. We want to know what they want to achieve in their career, what they're trying to accomplish with a move like this. Um, will they live our core values? So whether they realize it or not, we're really probing at that, which is really important to us from the get-go. Um, and if those things all add up, then it's typically a really good, it's a really good fit. Uh, a major topic these days, rightfully so, uh, diversity and inclusion. Mm -hmm. What is Rapid7 doing uh, as regards to that? I'm glad you asked. We, um, we've we just started thinking about it much more over the past couple of months, to be really honest. it, it um, We never really thought of it as a major challenge area for us. We have fortunate enough to have, you know, uh, an African-American CEO. We've got a number of women on our leadership team um, and that's all through the organization. So it's something that we didn't spend a ton of time thinking about until we started reading the news and thinking, wow, this is becoming a bigger deal in our whole ecosystem and, and what, our, what our peer companies are struggling with, et cetera. So how do we get ahead of it? And what we've tried to do is, is create things. We're, we're a very homegrown company. We don't necessarily like doing what um, is prescribed to us or if you, you know, here's a number, you should have this number of people or you should have this number. 
what instead we thought is what feels authentic to us to really focus on building the healthiest company we can. And it became much more about inclusion than trying to meet specific numbers around diversity. And those things are important. And we're, you know, looking at diverse college campuses and things for, for students. But the inclusion piece was really important to us. And we are trying to get really creative. So, for example, we are literally just about to launch a program um, called Coffee Insight that's a play on one of our products. And uh, what it's doing is allowing people all over the globe to meet, whether it's virtually or in person, for a cup of coffee. So if, you, if you're somebody that I think I want to get to know, I'm really interested in what you're doing with your job, or I want to learn more about that particular area, I can reach out to you and say, hey, Keith, you have time to meet up with me sometime over the next couple of weeks. If, it's, if you live in Seattle or wherever, we can do it virtually and do it on video. But we'll buy the, the, the two people a cup of coffee, and then we have all kinds of like little conversation starters and stuff, because it's a little weird to, to reach out to somebody you don't know. But the whole point is breaking down barriers and helping people to understand and, and learn more about each other's worlds and, and ultimately become much more collaborative um, as a result of it. And that for us is a huge piece of inclusion. We're looking for, you know, young women are already starting to make their list of, hey, I want to talk to some of the women leaders we have or whoever. And, and rather than have formal mentorship programs, which candidly a number of us have never seen work really well, we thought this would be a great introduction to, hey, if, if I feel like I can learn from you and you're willing to give me a little bit of time, let's sit down and have a cup of coffee. And if something happens organically, great, maybe we'll keep that connection. And maybe you do end up mentoring me, but you weren't assigned to me. You're not making time because you have to. It becomes an organic thing. So that's we're, we're playing with those types of things to really sort of break down barriers and help people feel like they're more, more included within the company. That's awesome. Culture is a common theme throughout our conversation here, so it's obviously something you take very serious here at Rapid7. At what point did you define your company values? And it's called the Moose Manifesto, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so you know, what what point? When we you... did it. Um, I joined when we were seventy five people, and it's the first thing I did when I got here. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, there was a strong culture. I mean, nobody could particularly articulate it. But the founders of the company actually cared about it deeply, which was one of the reasons I was interested in, in consulting at the time, because um, they sort of they got it. And certainly our CEO, Corey Thomas, is a huge, a huge um, supporter of, of all things culture here. He deeply lives it, not just talks about it, which is which is huge for somebody like me coming into a company. But when I came, I thought, you know, if we're going to start to scale, we had, I think, two offices at the time and we knew we were going to go through some pretty significant hiring. And I thought, now's the time. Like, let's not wait around for other things to happen. Let's get a group of people. So in, at that point in time, we're probably just over 75. And we took a group of probably 25 to 30 people that represented the entire organization's teams, um, the two offices that we had at every level. So we had great representation with about a third of the company. So by the time we worked through how do we want to define our values set, um, at the end of about a two-month period. Of course, the exec team got to like clean up language a little bit and make sure that they were bought in. But it was so grassroots in the hands of our people that we had a third of our staff already flag-waving moose um, by the time we uh, we articulated it out. So it made it much easier to weave it through the whole company. Um, and then we got to work and making sure that it tied to all of the other elements. And why a moose? Yeah, the, we didn't come up with the moose. The moose preceded <laughs> us. But... 
Um, the moose uh, is a, is our symbol for teamwork. I mean, it's a goofy little thing, but the singular of the word moose is moose. The plural is also moose. So it was meant to be together. We're all one moose. And, and now it's gotten to the point. It's a little hokey. We all get it. But we call each other moose. So if we're, you know, sending a company-wide email, instead of just saying, hey, guys, or hey, people, or it says, hey, moose, um, to the point where the day we went public two years ago, Corey actually sent an address to the company and he was talking, I think he was, you know, on Squawk Box or he's talking publicly about our moose. And you thought, wow, we really, that really <laughs> caught on. I mean, it's, it's not something anyone intended, but it's right. definitely who we are. That's great. Um, so when should a company really outline those uh, core values? And the reason why I'm asking just that pointed question is, um, so just over the past week, I've probably heard this three different times where I was at a panel discussion last week where um, an investor had recommended to one of their portfolio companies that were away on a conference and they were basically in their hotel room waiting. Actually, they're going to appear on Shark Tank. So they just had time to kill. Wow. And the investor was like, well, now's the time to sit in your hotel room and write out your core values as a company. And this company was fairly early stage. And then um, just over the weekend, I listened to the Drift podcast with Patty McCord, who led HR and talent at Netflix, and she was very adamant saying, write down your core values. They need to be written down and everyone needs to abide by them. Yeah. So um, if you could just add some context to that. I think that's true. Um, the one thing that I would advocate for, though, is that you don't just go off in a corner and create your own core values as a CEO. Right. I think... I think um, Getting input from others, especially if you're a small company, sort of it has to be, everyone has to be bought in. I mean, mm -hmm. I've, I've certainly um, spoken to a number of CEOs that say, here's my core values. This is what I believe in. Everybody else believes in them or they don't work here. And I think that's, I sort of get that, but that's not how life works at this point. People have a lot of different opportunities um, and they should feel like they're bought in. It's not just this dictatorial thing down. These are the rules we must follow, but rather... These are the behaviors that I want to embody because I believe in them too. And that's a nuanced quirk, but I think it's an important one. So if you have the latitude of being very small, I would include your team in helping to define what they are. You as the leader of the company certainly get to choose whatever they ultimately become, but getting that input from people assures buy-in from the beginning as opposed to just sort of saying, this is what it is. And then it's, and I think that forms everything else that you do. So if you can do them as early as possible and articulate what they are, it helps you attract people. I think it helps you have a conversation with somebody to say, this is what we believe in. And you can probe on it as you're, as you're interviewing people. I think it begins to help you figure out, even if you're not going to, you know, develop specific performance management at 10 people, you know, as you're beginning of thinking, who are we giving opportunities to? Are we giving it just to the people that, that are working really hard or they hit X number or it's because they actually are true carriers of your culture um, and live it. So yeah, the earliest you can do it, I think is, is absolutely sage advice. And I would think being authentic and not just making it a check off the checklist. It has to be who you are. It yeah. has to be yeah, yeah. what you truly believe in. So here's just a fun question. Um, so pet peeves, right? So you've been in this field for a while. I'm sure you've seen it all. Are there any pet peeves? This is just more like advice to candidates that are going through maybe the interview process at sure. companies and things that people might not be aware of, they should not be doing, or things they should be doing more of. Um, probably my biggest pet peeve is people that have done zero research 
on your company. Like in today's day and age, how you don't hit the website and just do a quick scan of, you know, what the company does, like you should know a little bit, um, at least enough to ask questions. I also, that's another one is if you have zero questions, if you're just there to take in the information and if I say, do you have any questions for me? And you say, no, I'm all set. Just have one, have a prepackaged question or two in your back pocket just to learn a little bit more. I think one of the best pieces of advice I can give to people is pick a question that's really deeply meaningful to you. If you really care about the culture, or you really care about how forecasting is, I don't really care what the question is, something that's meaningful to you and ask it of every person that you that you meet with because you'll start to see the consistency and, and start to draw some understanding of how the company communicates with each other. If you get 73 different answers, it's kind of telling too. Mm-hmm. So um, I like the, I'm a fan of the asking the same question of everybody. Word of advice for all listening to this podcast. What Christina just said of at the end of the interview, when the person conducting the interview asks you if you have any questions, and if you say no, that is absolutely the kiss of death for your interview. Might not be the end all be all, and it might not be the end all be all, but it does show a lack of interest in the company and just general awareness of what's going on. Just be, be interested, right? right? I mean, it, like, it's it's interviews are like first dates. Like, you want to make a great impression. You want to be yourself. You want to be authentic. But if you're a fun person, don't be afraid to show that element of your personality. Um, you have to you have to try to be your authentic self because you're going to live there for a couple of years at least, right? So. If, uh, if you're not showing them who you really are, then they're not really going to understand and make the right decisions too. How do you personally evaluate talent? <laughs> um, I, look, I look for authenticity and um, an insatiable curiosity to learn. I mean, those are things that, you know, lots of people have skills and, and skills can be taught. But I look for people that, having been in the the startup community for so long or the hyper growth community there's a lot of people that think they want to be in environments like this because they're growing and it seems sexy and the companies are you know doing well and and get press or whatever it's much harder than it looks and and to thrive in an environment like this takes a unique perspective and a and a unique person not it's not for everyone and to be able to um really look for people that want to come in and they're hungry to learn and they are willing to ask questions and they're willing to say, well, why is it done this way? And come up with a different answer. That whole innovation and curiosity and things, that's what I look for when I'm looking for people. The skills I can always teach if I think that they've got that in those elements. Last question. What was it like to ring the bell at the NASDAQ or being on the platform there as you're going uh, public. Uh, well, I didn't actually get to bring it. I just got to stand there. But it was yeah. it was a really, um, that was a very interesting day for me. I, it's my second one, third one, second that I'd been part of a leadership team as part of, which was pretty cool. And I don't think a lot of people get to say that. So that was sort of a career high moment for me. But there was also a reality to it, which is um, Corey, our CEO, had continually said leading up to the, to that day, it's just an event. It's a financial event. Like this doesn't make or break our company. It's just a cool thing that we can all say that we've gone through and get back to reality. And my reality was I flew up to New York or down to New York with my kids um, and they were there for that event as well, which was really cool. But everybody went back like we rang the bell. We celebrated for a little bit. 
had some champagne, everyone went back to work. Um, our team went back to Boston and I stayed behind with my kids. And literally an hour after we had left Na the NASDAQ building, I was walking down the street, heading down to go shopping through Times Square with my kids. And it was, the, I was like, hey, mom was just there ringing a bell. And they were like, yeah, whatever. It's, uh, you know, let's go to Carmine's for some pasta. So, I mean, for us, it was, it was a really cool day, but it was just, it was, it was a momentary blip on the cool career scale. And then you get back to reality. And I think that's very, very much how this life is here. It's just we keep it real. That's good. That's good. Well, Christina, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Uh, on closing, anything that you'd like to share with the VentureFizz audience? Come work here. We are such a fun company. <laughs> Doing really great stuff. Well said. I mean, the whole, you think about the uh, cybersecurity and how you guys were uh, early, obviously, and how much of a cluster it has built here in Boston. It's really phenomenal what it has It is happened. a really, really interesting space to be in, and you don't have to be intimidated by the fact that it seems like clandestine hackers and whatever. I mean, it's just, if you're curious, it's a really interesting space, and um, and we're growing and, and uh, you know, hopefully doing some good stuff in this community. I think we're all deeply wed, even though we're all over the world at this point. I think a lot of us feel very passionately about keeping that startup community alive in Boston and, and having it thrive. So we're, uh, we're pretty excited to be here. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Christina. Appreciate your time. Great. Thank you for having me. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. To propel your career forward, go to VentureFizz.com, where you can visit our biz pages for a virtual tour of Boston's fastest-growing companies, check out our job board for listings of over 2,000 career-defining positions, and read about the latest in Boston's tech scene. Last but not least, please remember to subscribe to Career Inspiration by VentureFizz on iTunes or your podcast player of choice. And if you like it, please consider leaving us a five-star review. Have a great week, and no matter what, keep moving forward.